Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to Psalm 138 this evening. Psalm 138. As many of you would know, but perhaps not all of you would care, uh, there are a lot of conversations that take place today in any number of athletic ventures as to who is the greatest of all time. Uh, you could turn on sports radio, you could read articles on the internet, you could turn on the television, and you're going to find a debate in every sport seemingly imaginable as to uh, who's the greatest athlete of all time. And I've shared with you before, um, at least when it comes to the sport of basketball, having grown up in the city of Chicago in the 90s, there's really no discussion on that one. Um, but we could shift to other sports and begin to debate and go, well, who's the greatest of all time when it comes to football? Uh, what position or baseball? What position? And start working our way through and go, well, who's the greatest? And I realize again that perspective on answering that is based on all kinds of factors. One, you have to assume that you care, which eliminates a lot of people right out of the gate. Uh, number two, it might be, well, it depends on your generation. And some of you would already look and say, Pastor Braxton, you're too young. Back in the day, and you'd have your favorite player from the 70s, perhaps, and say, that's the one. You never saw so-and-so play. And, uh, you know, I look at the younger generation who's also touting certain players and go, yeah, but you never saw and uh, give them kind of the same grief. So it might be due to when you were born. It might be where, uh, where you grew up and you begin to, because, man, I was in the city of Philadelphia or Chicago or Boston or whatever it may be where you just have an affinity uh, to answer that question based on where you grew up and when you grew up. Um, really answering that comes down to a couple things. Uh, things like your perspective and uh, your knowledge of different things, uh, but I would also point out to you it deals with assigned value. Uh, what are you assigning value to in making your determination, right? Uh, one of the things that often comes up in these discussions is all kinds of stats. Are we going to talk about championships won? Are we going to talk about numbers of championships entered? Are we going to talk about all-time leaders in this or that? Or, you know, all these things get thrown around and People assign different values to each of those things. And again, even as we talk about this already, some of you are like, I assign value to none of it, so can we just get to the point, right? When we come to Psalm 138, the psalmist is once again pointing us to his assigned value on God. And he is in the psalm going to point out the fact that he assigns value to God far above all kinds of things and all kinds of people. This is not uncommon at all in the Psalms, but again, if you think with me, and we'll see this as we work our way through, he's going to look at false gods, false idols, other things that people worship and go, I praise God above all of those things because he has assigned value to the one who is truly great, who is Jehovah, who is God. He's going to look at the kings the leaders, the authorities of his day, and he's going to go, and they too need to assign value to my God because he's worthy of their praise. He's going to look at his enemies who stand against him and even stand against the promises that have been made to him because David is the one writing the psalm and go, they need to assign value and praise my God too 
Can I just remind us before we work our way through the text and we go, okay, yep, I understand I'm supposed to praise God because we've been looking at this idea for quite a while of praising God on every path, that as you live every day, you are going to take the resources available to you and use them to assign value to all kinds of things. You're going to take, like, there's no neutrality on this, right? You're going to even take the time that you have and you're going to spend it somehow. You're going to say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to rest here. I'm going to work here. But even in how you choose to use that time and spend it, if you will, you're assigning value to different things. And it might be that we're saying, you know what, I'm going to rest because I have a God who has prioritized rest who actually instituted that and exemplified that in Genesis chapter 2, right? He finishes creation and he rests. You go, you know what? In the grace of God, following the example of God, I'm going to assign value to this because God assigned value to it. Well, I don't believe we're under the Old Testament law. I've been had some discussions about that recently. Uh, well, I don't believe we're under the Old Testament law. You don't have to look much in the law to realize God did assign value to rest even in the worship of him, right? On the other hand, you could say, you know what? I'm going to use the time that I have to work really hard. I'm going to invest in my job. And then the question is, so why? Where's that value going? Or you could say, you know what? Well, I'm going I'm to spend time with a lot of people and I'm going to build strong relationships in my family or in my neighborhood. And Okay, great. It's not a bad thing either, so why? Why are we doing these things? Why are we assigning value in how we spend our time? And We could look and say, well, how do we use our words or how do we use our other resources? Because we're constantly taking what God has given us as stewards of it and using it in some way. And I hope as we work our way through Psalm 138, we would think, how do I take whatever God's given to me Follow the example of David here and say, you know what I want everyone to see? I praise God. I assign value to him. He transforms the way that I spend my time. He transforms the way that I do my work. He informs all of my relationships. He is above everything else, and I want everyone else to see his worth. We've talked about this before, but it comes up in the Psalms, so I might as well mention it now. The word glory comes up. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament for glory that we see most often is the Hebrew word kavod. It means weight. Okay, If you're following the church's Bible reading plan, you just read 1 Samuel. I've shared it with you before, so some of you may remember. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4 will say Eli was heavy literally, it's the word kavod. He's weighty. But that, so you get the picture of it, but the idea for God is assign weight to God. Assign value to God. Make God big, right? The psalmist here makes a big deal about God. He assigns incredible value to God. So I wonder if we were to kind of take a poll of those who've interacted with my life, those who've interacted with your life, if they would go, my goodness, they assign incredible value to God. Again, the words might not be the same. They might, might be going, well, man, they just praise God, because that's what we're going to see in the text. 
but in essence, the idea is the same, that we've assigned value or weight or priority or glory or praise to God. So we jump into the psalm, we'll divide it into three sections, starting in verses 1 through 3, then going to verses 4 through 5, and finally finishing in verses 6 to 8. We come to verses 1 through 3, we want to notice first praise from the psalmist himself or praise from David himself. David's the one who's going to begin, and as often happens in the psalm, he says, so here's what I'm doing before I call others to do something very, very similar. At the end of the psalm, he's going to give in verses uh, 6 through 8, here's some purposes as to why I do this. But David starts out and says, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. In essence, when we look at this praise from David the psalmist, he starts by praise for his powerful superiority. He's going to say there's all kinds of other gods that get worshipped, but before them, I am about praising the true God. I'm about praising Israel's God, Jehovah. And so he makes this uh, heartfelt declaration, if you will, at the start of verse 1, to say with everything I have on the inside, I am going to praise him. This isn't just something said for the public, for everybody else to hear, where it's like, well, it's, it's Sunday for us, or maybe it's the Sabbath for them to go, well, you know what, praise God, I'm at church today, I, I need to praise God, and yes, I praise Him, but David's saying here, in my heart, I want to take all of my being and praise Him. The idea of the word praise here also speaks of giving thanks with the, that gratitude that goes on. You know what? When I look at what God has done, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude and I just have to give thanks. It becomes a little clearer as we keep working our way through the psalm. We're reminded of some of what God promised to David in texts like 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant, where you go, man, yeah, David, you have reason to praise God. Everlasting kingdom, right? Nothing's going to thwart that plan. And David will allude to that later on, that God will fulfill his purposes. That's one of the reasons why he wants to praise him. What God has said in his words, what God has done in his ways, he deserves praise. So David, yes, can say with my whole heart, I just am overwhelmed with gratitude, so I want to praise him. But let me turn and just ask us, as we want to assign value to God, as we need to follow David's example, what are you grateful for? Like if we just stopped, and we won't, but if we just stopped and said, hey, let's take some praises here real quick. What are you just so grateful for you have to say, I have to praise God with my whole heart? Like what would come to mind? Maybe it's an answer to prayer. Maybe it's just God's intervening grace in what you've seen in the last week. You have to bear with me, but like very clearly, I would say one of the things we all ought to is 1 John 3, 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God? That's astounding truth. You go, man, I will praise him with my whole heart because he's brought me into his family. He treated me with love when I was so undeserving. He's given me a future. So I wonder what it is that drives your praise that motivates your gratitude, where you say, I'm going to assign value to him. He's worth it. 
both in his character and in his personal action in your life, whether you actually follow through or not, which is a great reason for us then to go looking and to do it. Again, I would note that phrase there at the end of that first, uh, I guess the final words at the end of that first phrase, with my whole heart. I find it challenging, so I'll keep pointing it out as we go through different psalms, that he's not just saying, hey, I'm going to sing your praises because he's going to go there in a moment. We'll touch that next. But he doesn't want it to be just an external matter of routine. He wants to be driven by a passionate reality inside his heart. That's convicting to me, which is why I pointed out to you. It's really easy to walk into church and go, well, got to praise God. Or someone says something and you're like, yep, praise God. And yep, and it just kind of comes out because it's the thing to do. And sometimes we're not as thoughtful as we need to be to go, what did I just sing? What did we just see in the text of Scripture? To go, man, with my whole heart, God, would you just work on me? Because my heart gets too calloused. It takes too many things for granted so that I can echo what David says here and says, God, I will praise you with my whole heart. It's not just expressed as a heartfelt declaration. Secondly, it is communicated through musical exaltation. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. David's like, you know, there are all these fakes around. There are all these other gods that people worship. And that's very clear as we read through the Old Testament, even during the time of David, to realize, okay, they're going to worship Baal, or they're going to worship Dagon, or these different gods of the Canaanites who are absolutely impotent to be able to help anyone. I love the pictures of Isaiah, Jeremiah, also the picture of Psalm 115, uh, where the Spirit of God inspiring scriptures like, yeah, they have eyes, but they don't see they have ears, but they don't hear. I love the one in Isaiah 40 where it's like, okay, the guy goes out and he cuts down a tree and he takes a third of it and he uses it to make a fire to cook his food. And he takes a third of it and he covers it over with gold and silver and makes an idol to worship. And then he takes a third of it and he gets rid of it. And it's like, so from the same tree, he cooks his food, he has his trash and he makes his God, Right? It's like, man, in the face of all these false gods, I'm going to sing praise to my God. And while the nature of idolatry is different today, I would remind you that it is still very prevalent. People's gods today tend to be more in terms of uh, what they watch, what they enjoy, their entertainment, their possessions, their resources, the things that they live for and assign value to. And for us, we ought to be going, you know what I assign value to? You know what I want to sing about? You know what I want to point to? My God. With gratitude for what he's done for me. Again, he notes here that the nature of his praise is going to be driven by song. I like that once more because it's not contingent on, well, are we musical or not? But to go, our God delights in us taking our voices or taking instruments and calling attention to him. Again, the way God has made it, music is a powerful communicator and culture dictator, or maybe culture indicator is a better way to say that, of our day. Songs come and go, and people are like, man, that's a great song, and they love it because of what is speaking to them culturally in our world today. As believers, 
as those who seek to worship God, we ought to take music and say, I want to exalt him. I want to assign value and show everybody him for his powerful superiority. He is above all other gods. There are no other legitimate rivals. So there's praise from the psalmist in verse 1 for his powerful superiority. We come to verses 2 and 3. There is also praise from the psalmist for his committed mercy. His committed mercy. He begins with another repeated expression of praise, starting out saying, okay, I'm going to worship towards your holy temple and praise your name. God, I'm going to direct myself to the place where you dwell. Again, the way it worked in Old Testament Israel is to go where the temple is, before that where the tabernacle is. That's where the glory of God dwells. That's where the presence of God dwells. And we go, I'm going to look there, and God, I'm going to worship you there, the place that you have chosen to establish for yourself. For David, he continues on to define then reasons for praise. We could say it this way, in God's committed mercy, he has made undeserved promises. He says, it's for your loving kindness, for your truth. You've magnified your word above all your name. He starts again with that word loving kindness. We could summarize it this way. Praise God for his committed mercy in these undeserved promises because he has loved us faithfully. That word loving kindness is our Hebrew word hesed. We hit it over and over in the Old Testament. We hit it particularly in the Psalms. But it speaks of an undeserved committed love. So again, you'll find it translated different ways from loving kindness like it is here to mercy, highlighting the fact that it is unmerited. It's, it's not getting what you actually would deserve, but it is absolutely steadfast in its care for you. God, I'm going to praise your name because of your loving kindness to me. For us today, we might say, God, I'm going to praise your name for this committed, undeserved love that you've given to me. We talked about that this morning. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Romans 8, right? It's, it's inseparable. God, that's a reason to praise you. David does that here. But he also says, and for thy truth. In other words, he's loved us faithfully, but he does right reliably. Often when we work through the Old Testament, we come across this word truth. It speaks of what is right, but also the fact that it's reliable. It's consistently right. Truth is true, we might say. So God, I'm thankful for your truth because it's right and I can bank on it. It's always the same. I don't have to wonder if there's any change there. So God, you have done what is right. You've done it reliably so. And so I can trust you. I can lean on you. Again, there's points if we look through David's life where everything's up and down. Anointed to be king in 1 Samuel 16, but not immediately king. Not really king until 2 Samuel. Instead, as we work our way through the chapters that unfold in 1 Samuel, we see some amazing stuff like 1 Samuel 17 where David defeats Goliath. But from chapter 18 on, it's on. Because Saul's trying to kill David over and over and over and over again. And yet David's able to say, God, I'm thankful for your truth. Because what you've said is right. And it is always right. 
We can go into 2 Samuel and see struggle there as well, particularly after his sin with Bathsheba's murder of Uriah. See the ups and downs that happen and go, but you know what, God, I'm going to praise you because of your truth. It's not contingent on me, but God, I am thankful that you do right reliably. Third, we could say it this way, in making his undeserved promises, he keeps his word faithfully. So God, you've shown me loving kindness. God, you've given this truth, but you have magnified your word above all your name. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. God, when you say something, you will follow through because you are committed to what you have said. Now again, recognizing David's our author here, inspired by the Spirit of God, it's helpful to think, okay, God made David a promise, right? I will build you a house. There will always be an heir. It's that 2 Samuel 7, Davidic covenant kind of promise. And God always keeps his word. But you see, when we read this, this principle is not just true for David, but for us to understand when God makes a promise, he always follows through. He will fulfill his word. We struggle with this in our humanity, right? Um, We can make all kinds of commitments with our words, and we don't even stop to think about it. In fact, we talked about that a little bit as we started working through covenant stuff, right? Um, And some of us may have different views on that. Uh, in this respect, we could go, well, you know what? I- I'm going to show up at your house at 8.30. And for some of you, that means I'm going to be there at 8.28. And for others of you, 8.40, maybe 8.50. Maybe you had the best of intentions, but traffic got in the way. There was that last minute thing at home and you didn't actually follow through on what she said, right? And again, somebody, like, ah, it's no big deal. You understand what I mean. I, didn't, I wasn't like promising. You realize when God says something, he always follows through. It's not like, well, socially and consequentially, you understand that it's really no big deal. When God says, it happens. I mean, even just picture like what took place at creation when he says, let there be, and it happens. Like, God's word is a big deal, which is wonderful for us because we come to all kinds of truth. We've spent a lot of time today singing about the future, about what awaits believers. You know why we bank on that? Because God's exalted his word above his very name. He always follows through on what he said. It's based on his loving kindness, or as has said, and his truth. That's worth being grateful for and praising him for and singing about. So the psalmist gives this praise for God's powerful superiority, for his committed mercy, because God has made undeserved promises. He's done it and loving us faithfully, particularly David, but also by principle us, by doing right reliably, by keeping his word faithfully. But I would remind us that we don't just see his committed mercy in making undeserved promises, but also in answering desperate prayers. Secondly, in answering desperate prayers. David points to God's mercy in verse 3 when he says, In the day when I cried, thou answerest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. 
Like first, God, when I called out to you, you responded. You heard. And you chose to answer. There's all kinds of people you can ask for help. Like, just a side note, like we've come through a very busy season in everybody's schedules lately. Maybe we're not through it yet. I don't know. I shouldn't speak too soon. But you know, you can call around and go, hey, could you help with this? And like, ah, sorry, I'm doing this, and I got this, and I got this. And like, people are just busy, right? And we understand that. That's the way things work. David looks at God and says, God, when I call out to you, you answer. That's a wonderful truth. And then he goes on to say, and what you did is you gave me strength. You strengthened me with strength in my soul. To go, God, you gave me what I need to get through. Right? We have a little sign in our house that says, God doesn't give us more than he can handle, but he helps us handle what we are given. Right? You know, there's points in life where I go, I don't know that I can. And we say, God, I, I need your help. I need your grace. I need you to change something. You know, God strengthens. He enables. He gives grace in our weakness. So I wonder, in light of David's example here, if it's our habit to turn to God in prayer. Say, Lord, this next week, I don't know how we're going to do it. God, what I'm facing medically, God, I don't know. I can't. God, the, the battle with sin is just intense. Just as a side, we actually sang much along those lines in one of the requests that was chosen tonight, right? I run to Christ. You know, when I'm overwhelmed, I run to Christ. When I'm tempted with sin, I run to Christ. When I'm absolutely exhausted, I run to Christ. David's going to go, you know what? In the day of my distress, or in this day, I cried, you heard. You strengthened my soul. I wonder if you have those accounts that you can look back on in life and go, you know what? Struggling, this was hard. I asked God, and I'm not quite sure, but somehow God got me through it. His grace just sustained and upheld. We start with praise from the psalmist in verses 1 through 3, but then we move beyond just him as a man to praise from the powerful. Praise from the powerful in verses 4 and 5. He says, all the kings of the earth will praise you, shall praise thee, O Lord. And very clear, the outline is not profound or hard when you look at verse 4 and verse 5, because he says, first, they're going to hear the words of your mouth, and then they're going to sing about your ways. And so if you want an alliterated outline, we just go to verses 4 and 5, right? It's like, all the kings of the earth are going to praise you for your words and for your ways. Again, if you walk through praise from the powerful there for his words, he starts universally. All kings. No exceptions. We'll recognize it doesn't matter if we see it or feel it. Like, again, presently you can look around and go, man, we have some people who really deny God in their positions of leadership. They absolutely stand against Him. Well, you know what? There is coming a day where all kings will praise Him. Not just all kings, but everyone. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
And you know what? Everyone will. Which is why, again, Psalm 2 admonishes us. We haven't looked at Psalm 2 in quite a while, but Psalm 2 admonishes us. So you'd better kiss the son lest he be angry. You'd better live in good relationship to God's son. Universally, all kings are called to praise him for his words, but I would also say submissively because they are kings, they are people in authority, and they better recognize they are under him because he is the supreme sovereign. We could say they also do this worshipfully because they are called to praise. They do this responsively because they hear the words of his mouth. God's word carries power, and they're being called here for all kings to recognize it. Again, within even just the promise God made to David, you start to see that play out. You see even further built out as David's son Solomon takes the throne, takes the reign. Where again, people are going to travel and marvel and see what has taken place over Solomon. And you wouldn't think, well, wow, I mean, the king of Israel becomes this world leader. But he does because of what God has done in blessing. We can look throughout biblical history and see example after example. It was not too long ago on Wednesday nights, we spent some time going through the early chapters of Daniel. And you can watch Nebuchadnezzar or Belteshazzar or Darius begin to realize, Daniel's God, he's the sovereign one. Everybody needs to, I mean, like we end chapter after chapter in Daniel with these calls from these kings to worship Daniel's gods. Because, okay, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego made it through the fiery furnace. You better worship their God. He just interpreted these dreams. You better worship their God. What, what God prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar came true. Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, you better worship his God. Over and over, that appeal is made because God deserves praise from all, all the powerful, because of his sovereignty. True in his words, it's also true as you come to verse 5 in his ways. He says, they too, they're going to sing in the ways of the Lord. They need to sing his praise as well because great is the glory of the Lord or great is this weightiness of Jehovah. We need to assign value to him. The Lord's glory is great. There's coming a day when every authority will recognize him as well as all people. So I wonder if in my life and in yours again, people see that we will sing his praise. We will assign glory to him. We look at the text here. We say, here's praise from the psalmist, verses 1 through 3. Here's praise from the powerful, the kings, in verses 4 and 5. But then we want to walk through praise for his purposes, finally, in verses 6 through 8. What God intends to accomplish will be done. We've already alluded to the fact God made a promise to David, and that becomes to clearer here as we work through verses 6 through 8. But what God intends to accomplish will happen. Who he wants to honor, he will honor. When he wants to help, he will help. When he wants to protect, he will protect. I want to give you four actions of God here that point to the fact that he deserves praise for his purposes. I've shared these with you before, but let me walk through them again tonight before we close as we walk through verses 6 through 8. He starts in verse 6 and says, Though the Lord be high, the idea of loftier, transcendent, lifted up, yet he hath respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. We could say it this way, God respects the humble. 
We praise God for his purposes here because God respects the humble. While he's completely sovereign, he's above all, he shows incredible mercy, he reaches down to the lowly, the humble, this broken and contrite heart that he doesn't despise. But it's still the proud he stands against. Again, I, I think of that text in James chapter 4 where he says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Stands out to us to implicitly be challenged to live in humility, to go, you know what? If I'm going to praise God, if I'm going to assign value to him, I need to appreciate the fact he reaches out to me. He condescends to reach out to me. I really am nothing. To be called a son of God, as we talked about this morning, is truly amazing. And I'm thankful that I have a God who reaches out to the lowly. He respects the humble. I don't want to be on the other side of that equation where he rejects the proud and stands against them. Secondly, he not only respects the humble, as we come to verse 7, he revives the troubled. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. I wish I knew what time period this psalm was written in in David's life. Admittedly, we don't know that for sure. Because you can walk through David's life and see these different difficulties pop up time and time again. You go, so was it there? Was it there? Again, at the end of the day, perhaps it doesn't matter. But David's saying, when I walk through these times of trouble, and that word trouble speaks of circumstances which generate anxiety and distress, where it's like there's no rest. I am worked up about what's going on. I can't be settled. God, you breathe life again to me. You revive. You help. So God, I give you praise because you respect the humble and you revive the trouble. We might also say you, you calm the anxious. End of verse 7, he rescues the wronged. He rescues the wronged. He says, thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies. Thy right hand shall save me. You read a phrase like that and you start to picture, at least I start to picture in my mind, those chapters and later on in 2 Samuel where we're dealing with Absalom and Sheba and these different ones who are standing against David trying to kill him, who is the king. To go, you know what David can say, God, you'll stand against my enemies, you'll save me. And there's points where David, in spite of his power as king, in spite of all that God has used to him to accomplish, is out of his kingdom. He's on the run. And yet because God has made promises, because God has shown loving kindness, truth, he's exalted his word above his very name. David says, I'm going to praise you. And I know that you will rescue, that your right hand will save me. You will deliver. Finally, we come to verse 8. We could say it this way. David praises him for his purposes because God always completes his will. We talked about that with the idea of he's exalted his word above his very name, but God always completes his will. The Lord, Jehovah, will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the work of thine own hands. Jehovah will complete, will perfect what he has promised to David. He also will uh, continue to show hesed, this covenant faithfulness, this mercy 
to, the Lord, to David forever. So God, don't leave me off. Don't forsake the work of your hands. Don't stop what you've started. Again, we go, well, that's great for David. I mean, look at 2 Samuel 7. But think, through, think with me about the New Testament. Does God finish what he starts? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5.24 reminds us that faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. God calls us and he does enable us. Or we could go to the familiar words of Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that we can be confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. He won't stop. He won't leave it off. He will perform it. Or we could go to the familiar words of Hebrews chapter 12, where we say, okay, we're going to run with endurance. We're going to run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, who is the author of our faith, and then leaves us hanging, right? He's the author and finisher, the author and perfecter of our faith. He doesn't stop halfway. He initiates it, and he completes it. We saw it this morning. We are sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. But we know this. When he shall appear, we shall be like him. It's done at that point. Right? We're glorified. We're able to perfectly worship him because we see him as he is. God completes his will. It looks different for us than it did for David, at least in this text. But to go, the promises God has made will be kept. He will continue to show mercy or loving kindness, steadfast love to us. So praise him. Praise him. You go, you know what? I'm going to sing. I'm going to assign value. I'm going to praise. I'm going to do it in the face of things that other people worship. I'm going to do it in the face of other authority to go, you know what? My God deserves attention. He deserves praise. And so I will give it to him. Let's close in prayer. Father, I pray that you would take the words of this psalm and use them once more in our lives individually to cause us to live for your glory, both in how we conduct life and even in how we communicate as we leave this place. Lord, I recognize again that we're going to take our words, our time, our work, and all different kinds of things in life and assign value to different things. But Lord, I pray that it would be clear to all around us because it's driven by a heart that says we want to glorify you. We want to praise you. We want others to see your greatness because of the love that you've shown to us, because of the fact that you complete what you've started in us. Lord, again, we do love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll sing one more final time today. Pastor Ginger, if you'd come lead us.